Disclaimer. Any supposed facts or observations contained therein are attributed to the speaker and do not necessarily imply the endorsement of the podcasters or their affiliates. Does that sound right? That didn't sound like I said it right. Oh well, let's run with it. Cut. Radio Land and welcome to One Track Mind, the only commentary podcast that matters because, as far as I know, it's the only one. My name is Ryan Luis Rodriguez, a born-again cinephile, and your host for this series where every week we're going to analyze film through the prism of audio commentaries, features without which the entire medium of podcasting would not exist. Directors, Writers, actors, and craftspeople analyzing their own films in front of a microphone set the stage for the current culture, and it's about damn time someone showed the proper appreciation. If that sounds too stuffy, I promise there will be jokes. This week is the first installment of a trilogy of sorts, the three commentaries recorded by John Carpenter and his muse, legendary actor Kurt Russell, beginning with 1981's Escape from New York. Our story begins in 1968, when a young Jonathan Carpenter transfers to USC's School of Cinematic Arts, when he wrote and directed Captain Voyeur, an eight-minute morsel that would prove Carpenter's training ground for later pictures such as Halloween. Shortly thereafter, Carpenter dropped out, and in 1970 co-wrote, composed the music for, and edited another short film, The Resurrection of Bronco Billy, which went on to win the Academy Award for Best Live Action Short Film. That same year, Carpenter and the late legend Dan O'Bannon collaborated on a great science fiction film with a budget of $6,000, Dark Star, and the film was finished by 1972, which, I gotta say, is an eternity for a studio film and quite normal for something so micro-budgeted, which we'll explore in later episodes when we cover Sam Raimi's Evil Dead trilogy. Dark Star was a little short, so in 1973, distributor Jack Murphy paid for the production of 50 additional minutes of content. Later that year, producer Jack H. Harris took a hold of the project. Harris's first demand, the movie may be feature-length, but around 30 minutes of it were intolerable. I cannot vouch for this stance. Resulting in the production of more additional footage. Burned and spurned, Carpenter moved on from Dark Star, and in 1976, released a great little thriller called Assault on Precinct 13, itself inspired by one of Howard Hawks's greatest efforts, Rio Bravo. Two years later, Carpenter returned with a 1-2-3 punch. A television film called Someone's Watching Me, which I have never seen, a screenplay for Irving Kirshner's Eyes of Laura Mars, and the slasher masterpiece Halloween, which was, at the time, the most financially successful independent film of all time grossing more than $65 million on a budget of $300,000, which is absolutely phenomenal. Freakishly so. The following year, Carpenter refused to be pigeonholed and returned to television with Elvis, the project on which he met his repeated future star, Kurt Russell. In 1980, he directed The Fog, another box office hit, albeit with only a third of the gross of Halloween on a budget three times higher. The production was rather fraught, with Carpenter ended up reshooting a large portion of the film to make it more suspenseful and graphically violent, with the final product consisting of one-third reshot footage. His next film, 
shooting the same year as The Fog's release, was this week's film, Escape from New York, the commentary for which was recorded in 1994 for Laserdisc. 1988. The crime rate in the United States rises 400%. 1991. The United States police force is formed. 1997. New York City is a walled maximum security prison. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Kurt Russell. Lee Van Cleef. Ernest Borgnine. Donald Pleasance. Isaac Hayes. Season Hubley. Harry Dean Stanton as Brain. And Adrian Barbeau as Maggie. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. The ultimate adventure of escape and survival. The film is set in the apocalyptic future, now past, of 1997. The Soviet Union and China have formed an alliance and declared war on the United States. Crime rises 400%, and the U.S. converts a desolate New York into a maximum security prison, bordered by 50-foot walls on every front. The president's plane... Air Force One, is hijacked by a member of the National Liberation Front of America, whatever that means. And Air Force One crash lands in the one place you don't want to crash land. You'll never guess where. It's New York. The place in the title? No? Anyone? Bueller? To rescue the president, police commissioner... Police commissioner? Police Commissioner Bob Hawk enlists the skills of the legendary outlaw Snake Plissken, a man so legendary that everyone he encounters believes he's been dead for years. After robbing the Federal Reserve, Snake is taken into the custody of the government and injected with micro-explosives that, after 22 hours, will sever his carotid arteries. Considering how many action movies feature brain injection bombs, just look at, I don't know, Mission Impossible 3 for proof, it's clear that this film had a cultural impact. If Snake can rescue the president within that time frame, he will receive a presidential pardon. If he doesn't, Deadsville, baby! The president also has on his person a cassette tape with nuclear fusion information. But this is such a random, unimportant, non-sequitur MacGuffin that Carpenter himself seems to have no idea what it actually is. The whole MacGuffin of this movie is this tape. The president supposedly has uh, something to do with uh, uh, fusion or fission or something. That Something's going to save the world. <laughs> that's right. It doesn't really matter, but it was something that we needed to get back. It's, it's a, an important plot device that you can immediately forget and not worry about anymore. That aside, you know you're going to be in for a wild ride when one of the first comments from John Carpenter on this commentary is the following. By the way, both of our ex-wives are in this movie. That's right. We're going we're gonna to get to see and remember a lot of good times here. <laughs> Awkward. In case you didn't know, Carpenter's ex-wife was Adrienne Barbeau, who also starred in The Fog, and Susan Hubley appeared in Elvis, where she met her future ex-husband, Kurt Russell. Escape from New York employed several members of the Carpenter Repertory crew members. Producer Larry Franco, who performed first assistant director duties on Elvis and the Fog, graduated to the role of producer. Carpenter's most important collaborator, cinematographer Dean Cundy, who also shot The Fog and Halloween, and would go on to shoot The Thing and Halloween 3 before moving on to becoming Robert Zemeckis' DP on Romancing the Stone, the Back to the Future trilogy, and the most miraculous movie of the 1980s, 
Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which we discussed a couple of weeks ago. New collaborators also emerged. Production designer Joe Alves, who would go on to graduate to second unit director and visual consultant on Starman, and composer Alan Howarth, who also did the music with Carpenter for Halloween 2, Halloween 3, Christine, Big Trouble in Little China, which we'll discuss in a couple of weeks, Prince of Darkness, and They Live. Dean Cundy proceeded to follow up his groundbreaking work on Halloween working with the Panaglide camera, which eventually evolved into the Steadicam, and he had to work fast. There was very little time for coverage, so there was a reliance on master shots. The budget was practically microscopic at $5 million, but the shooting location of East St. Louis allowed the production to shut off electricity to 10 blocks at a time in the evening, which allowed Cundy to use new Panavision lenses that allowed for low-light photography. For the first two-thirds of the film, the production seems to be experimenting with exactly how little is visible in any given location, whether it be interior or exterior. St. Louis had suffered a massive fire in 1977, and certain blocks of the city looked downright derelict and uninhabitable, and Carpenter and crew used that to great effect. Part of low-budget filmmaking is utilizing the lack of funds for economy and atmosphere. By showing as little as possible, St. Louis becomes an apocalyptic New York, to the point that you would be forgiven if you thought it was shot on location. In fact, there are only two shots in the entire film that were shot in New York, and ironically, they're virtually undetectable. One of the shots is so brief that most of the frame utilizes a very clever optical screen wipe, an effect that reminds me of the opera catwalk scene in Citizen Kane, another film we'll be discussing in the near future. Am I the only one to draw a connection between Citizen Kane and Escape from New York? Well, so be it. I'm proud to make any contribution to the discourse. The effects, done by Roger Corman's New World Pictures under the direction of James Cameron, credited as Jim Cameron, were pretty clever for such a low-budget production, like relying on animated graphics to avoid shooting a plane crash, and my favorite bit of business, a shot that looks like a computer-generated wireframe scene that was, in fact, not a computer-generated wireframe scene at all. This entire sequence I attribute to them. Now, this computer graphic was done by building a small model out of, out of uh, cardboard boxes and painting them black and covering them with uh, green lines because we didn't really have, uh, again, computer technology then. The fake Air Force One was actually a real wrecked plane purchased just for the production and spread across a square block with several lighting setups, an illusion that was so effective that people living in the outlying neighborhood called the police to report an airline crash. Speaking of Air Force One, the President of the United States was played by a British man, Donald Pleasance, star of the Puma Man, and notorious for being unable to do an American accent. But to Pleasance's credit, he tried to fashion a comprehensible backstory. I stress, tried to. There's a reason I didn't say successfully. And now here's Donald, the President. Donald made up an entire story about how he got to be president. It had something to do with uh, 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 Margaret Thatcher taking over the world and, and making the United States a colony again, but I never used any of it. But all that garbage aside, we're all here for Snake Plissken, the most iconic anti-hero this side of Han Solo. 
There is an entire bank robbery cold open that explains how Snake was captured by the government, but excising it completely makes no difference, really. When Kurt Russell first shows up as Snake, we know exactly who he is. We have an idea of the legend built up around him and enjoy his very presence. But it was not smooth sailing in terms of executing the character. The executives at Distributor Avco Embassy expressed concern that Snake had no socially redeeming value, as if that wasn't the entire point. They also got worried about the contrast and darkness of the film, causing Carpenter to break it up by featuring daytime locations in the last third of the film. There was also concern that Snake was too asexual, another thing that doesn't ultimately matter. To bolster his status as an anti-hero, the character comes across a sexual assault on his mission to track down the president and just turns around and heads in the opposite direction, to best emphasize his moral ambivalence. It's a scene that, quite obviously, does not appear in most television edits of the film. One of Carpenter's favorite scenes occurs relatively early on in the picture, as Snake reaches the president's plane only to find his escape pod empty. And in a moment of hopelessness, he takes a seat in a discarded chair, getting quietly contemplative. And while it's not necessarily the first thing that forms in my brain when I think of this movie, it is a great scene. Before shooting began, Kurt Russell had only four months to get into physical shape, so he went to his local gym and just started working. And it pays off, considering his shirtless scene in the wrestling ring, where he shows off an infamous tattoo of a cobra on his midsection a bit of makeup business that earned him numerous letters from women expressing their gratitude for this scene. A scene in which the cobra is visibly melting off his sweaty chest. Sounds delicious, if you ask me. Carpenter described the character as, quote, a total individual in a world devoid of individuality, unquote. Whether or not that's a good thing, considering his heroism only develops under duress, but he seems to think so. Russell credits Escape from New York as the real start of his adult career after a decade and a half of appearing in live-action Disney movies like The Barefoot Executive and many others, and I have to agree with that assessment. It's almost unfathomable to imagine what 80s cult cinema would look like had the two of them not hooked up and fostered a connection. Their ease together is kinda enchanting. Well, there's Dick Warlock now. Dick was... Bang! <laughs> Dick was uh, my stuntman, and had been my stuntman, well, he was my stuntman for 22 years, and... Uh, When'd you first work with him? I was trying to remember. We, we worked together, I think, on... Uh, it might have been a picture called... Uh, at Disney, called... Uh, oh, computer War yeah, Tennis computer Shoes? Computer War Tennis Shoes, that was it. Really? That was it, 1968 or 9. They're remaking that now, you know. You're kidding. No. You're They're remaking kidding. that, oh, yes. Oh, boy. They're pulling some... Pull him out of the. Maybe you want to play the father yeah. or something now. <laughs> it's, it's either me or Tom Bosley. <laughs> the most amazing thing about his casting, though, Avco Embassy wanted Charles Bronson for the role. Bronson was already long in the tooth at the time, on the verge of making 8 million absurd sequels to Death Wish for Canon Films. Just like the combination of Russell and Carpenter serving as an evergreen partnership, imagine what Escape from New York is like without anyone but Kurt Russell in the lead role. Go ahead. I'll imagine it. You imagine it. I'll sit here silently while you ponder.
we back? Good. The rest of the cast is similarly, if not to a lesser degree, quite memorable. We have Harry Dean Stanton as Harold Brain Hellman, a former compatriot of Snake's and a legendary underworld engineer. Lee Van Cleef as Bob Hawk, the police commissioner who enlists Snake's reluctant assistance. Ernest Borgnine as Cabby, essentially the transportation across the slums of New York, a character co-created by co-writer Nick Castle, who originated the role of Michael Myers and served as cinematographer on the resurrection of Bronco Billy. Isaac Hayes as the Duke, the nefarious crime boss who rules New York with an iron fist and serves as a primary antagonist of the film. Hayes also fought for, and was allowed to have, a facial twitch every time he encounters Snake. And despite definitively being killed in the last few minutes of the movie, it didn't stop Hayes from campaigning for a resurrection. I was talking with Deborah Hill the other day, and, and uh, Isaac Hayes sent a message to both of us and said, I'm not dead, man. <laughs> you guys do a sequel, I want to be part of it. <laughs> he was terrific. I, I worked out with him, I'd wake up... Sometimes in the morning, because we were working all nights, and I'd wake up in the morning, and Isaac would say, well, call me tomorrow morning. And I'd call, I'd wait as long as I thought I could, and then I'd call, and the lowest voice in, re in history would answer the phone. I, it, there's no way to describe how low his voice was after a night of work. Sadly, neither person included in that anecdote is currently with us. And I'm going to give you a moment to process that stone-cold bummer of a fact. We also have the aforementioned Adrian Barbeau as Brain's cohort and girlfriend Maggie, whose death scene in the film had to be reshot in Carpenter's Garage, Halloween co-star Charles Cyphers as the Secretary of State, Frank Doubleday as the bucktooth mutant Romero, named after George A., who looks like a cross between a caveman and the feral kid from Mad Max 2. Jamie Lee Curtis appears in an uncredited role as the narrator of the cold open, explaining the setting of the film and the state of the world. And of course, the great Tom Atkins as Captain Ream, Hawks' second-in-command, who also appeared in The Fog, and, in a lead role, Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Escape from New York is not the first audio commentary that John Carpenter recorded, and it's certainly not the last, but if Kurt Russell is not involved, I don't know that I could listen for the entire duration of the feature. He has a tendency to simply explain what's happening on screen, as if the idea of audio commentaries is simply a device to help the blind. So now we're established, we're in 1997, and our, our little crawl is over with, and we begin the film, and uh, this is the inside of the, the police station. Supposedly, uh, Snake Plissken, the main character played by Kurt, is uh, a nefarious criminal who's about to be put away in New York, and we're, we're establishing that before we get into the main body of the action. Yes, John. Yes, John, I know who Snake Plissken is. On a budget of only $5 million, as I stated before in case you weren't listening, the film grossed just over $25 million at the box office. To be considered a financial success, a film must gross twice its budget. So five times its budget sure ain't too shabby. The legacy of the film is also wide-ranging, generating a sequel that I have absolutely no interest in, 1996's Escape from L.A., and a third movie in the franchise was planned, Escape from Earth, but jettisoned after Escape from L.A. flopped at the box office, taking in only half of its budget. If you're a gamer, and you've played Metal Gear Solid, 
The protagonist of that franchise is named Solid Snake, after Pliskin, and even boasts the iconic eye patch, which you would assume affects your depth perception as you crawl across various environments and shoot bad guys. Good guys? I've never played it. In the Dome. And speaking of J.J. Abrams, we brought up Mission Impossible 3 a couple of minutes ago, in case you weren't listening. The producer was inspired by the poster for this film, depicting the decapitated head of the Statue of Liberty blocking a decrepit street, which doesn't appear in the film, to include the image in his modern-day monster movie Cloverfield. Now, that doesn't necessarily make Cloverfield more interesting or more vital, but it bears mentioning. There you have it. Escape from New York. Good flick. But before we wrap up, it's the moment you've all been waiting for. It's Ryan's Recommendations. This week's recommendations are flush with Johnny Carpenter films, but just two. First up is his fourth film, 1980's aforementioned The Fog. Even though Carpenter had his issues with the film that we brought up in the episode proper, its visual ambition, expertly photographed by the legendary Dean Cundey, is more than enough to warrant its inclusion in this section of the episode. Next up is the movie Carpenter made as penance for the huge financial flop that was The Thing, which we'll discuss next week, 1984's gentle science fiction romance Starman. Columbia Pictures notoriously passed over E.T., to make this film, which barely covered its own production budget at the box office. And while that was not the most prudent decision from a financial perspective, it's still a remarkable little wonder that typifies the kind of small-scale science fiction that was offered in the 1980s. The kind of mid-budget, quiet little effort that today would absolutely be dumped on Netflix alongside three seasons of television shows you don't care about and would never watch. Movies today aren't really made for grown-ups, which is a shame, because we could use more like Starman. The final recommendation for this week is one that I teased a couple of episodes ago, the 1980 space opera Battle Beyond the Stars. If you listen to the Coolness Chronicles, or just started, or never bothered, I famously, or rather infamously, bash this film as part of my Roger Corman deep dive. So allow me to apologize right now, for that dunderheaded move. I apologize. There. Are you happy now? I know what you're thinking. The other two recommendations were John Carpenter-centric, so what does this have to do with that? Well, just like the effects for Escape from New York, Battle Beyond the Stars has visual delights from the budget-conscious minds at New World Pictures, including one of the most acclaimed blockbuster directors of all time, one Jimmy Cameron. And that includes the spaceship that looks like a heaving bosom. I'm quite partial to that one. For unrelated reasons? Hmm. Starman is available on Blu-ray from Scream Factory. The Fog is on 4K, a beautiful-looking disc from the same boutique label. And Battle Beyond the Stars is available as part of the Roger Corman cult classic selection on Shout Factory Blu-ray. So all of them are part of the Shout Factory library. Didn't plan that in any way whatsoever. It's just the way things worked out. For more reviews and recommendations, check out my Letterbox page at letterbox.com slash one-track-mind. That'll do it for this week. Is there anything I overlooked? Reach out to me at one-track-mind-pod on Twitter 
one, that is the numeral one, Podcast on Instagram, on Podchaser, or send an email to onetrackmindpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy what you hear, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or the source of your choice. Positive feedback helps keep the show alive, and I want to keep making it until it just isn't fun anymore. Also, check out the official Patreon page at patreon.com slash onetrackmindpodcast, where you can get every episode early and exclusive bi-weekly bonus episodes. Special thanks to the amazing Lacey Barker for the podcast artwork, Bill Sherm for all of our original themes, and special, special thanks to our equally amazing patrons. Case A, Catherine H., Ellen I., Kathleen D., Izzy T., Bobby L., Michael A., Ian C., Ian M., Kitty K., Kelly B., The Vern, Mary M., Bill M., Christopher H., and Tracy R. Thanks for listening, and until next time, you're going to cut that, right? Dawn, that's the end.